passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Pollock and Thurston are live. Welcome, everybody, on this Wednesday, September the 20th edition of the show. I am John Pollock, joined from WrestleNomics HQ himself, Brandon Thurston. Hello, Brandon. Hello. How are you? I'm sound, uh, I'm doing great. You sound crystal clear. Do it's I? like you're, you're right here next to me. We have an, an, an improved uh, and upgraded headset today, so hopefully I sound a little bit better. Well, I guess as you're going into this new TKO era, it's time to... Yes. Uh, you know, upgrade everything. Well, little did we know that we would have a, a big Vince McMahon, well, feature to talk about at the start today. The LA Times dropping quite a story on Vince McMahon that a lot of it is kind of biographical in nature, but some new reporting attached to it, including the man who I might be putting near the top of our to get list, Ignace Lahoud. Yes. The man that has, uh, always uh, kind of fascinated us, has a very mysterious uh, name attached to him. And I think after reading this article that if we see um, some new signee in WWE who becomes uh, a villain named Ignace, I think we can know how deep Vince McMahon is into the weeds of creative. But Ignace LaHood speaking on the record with the LA Times and sharing his reasoning for leaving the board of directors, which he uh, resigned from at the beginning of this year that coincided with Vince McMahon uh, elbowing his way into power back in the yeah, power. He, he wasn't on the board for very long. He was, he was probably on the board for may, maybe a year, maybe could be less than a year. I'd have to look. Um, but when Vince McMahon forced his way back in, in January, Ignacio Laoud and Manjit Singh both resigned promptly after that was, that, that happened. Um, but yeah, he, he says, I think I have the, the quote here. Um, he said, it, it, he's talking about his return, Vince's return. It wasn't aligned with my way of seeing what governance is. There was a misalignment with what my values are. That's about as straightforward as you're going to get from people in, in these positions and willing to speak publicly and I think be pretty transparent in the fact that I did not agree with um, the way this was handled and this person's return to power and it is not something I wanted to be attached with. And certainly I think you would, um, you know, you would have to speak to each uh, a board member of how they felt, but this was a board that we have the, the, the SEC uh, communication between the board that unanimously voted for Vince McMahon to stay on his extended retirement 
which did include Nick Khan, who months later would state, well, everyone knew this was this is just, you know, like one of those retirements. I mean, retirements, whatever. Um, but then Vince said that that's wonderful that you all want to unanimously vote me off the island. But uh, I run the island. So I'm, I'm back. Yeah. And I think one of the I think the most important thing that this brings forward is it it's exploring the legal jeopardy that Vince is still in. We know from the last earnings report from WWE, they disclosed in, in one little sentence, one very short paragraph in their big, long 10, 10Q report, they disclosed that there was a search executed on Vince McMahon on July 17th um, related to the the inquiry that's ongoing. Um, apparently, I mean, reportedly, according to this, it is, as you'd expect, it's with the SEC, it's with the Department of Justice, um, and that continues to happen. Um, they they did, did talk to Jacob Frankel, who is the mm-hmm. chair of Dickinson Wright's Government Investigations and Securities Enforcement Practice Group, and a former senior counsel for the SEC's Division of Enforcement. So I guess it sounds like this is a guy who used to work for the SEC. Whenever you need three lines to explain your your position in this world, usually carry some weight with it. Yeah, so he used to work for the SEC Division of Enforcement. So I guess he he's a lawyer who worked with the SEC on enforcing the rules, maybe laws, around the SEC. Uh, and he said... Um, that the, the inquiry could be much broader than the one the company and its majority shareholder. Uh, and where's the beginning of this quote here? Depending on the, the potential findings, McMahon could face criminal and or civil liabilities that could prevent him from serving as an officer or director of a public company, as well as clawback of any quote unquote ill-gotten gains. Uh, so th- this is somebody who knows the law, who knows the rules that, that are that are being looked at here and saying that it could end up as a result of this investigation or as a result of maybe he gets indicted, um, that he wouldn't be able to serve as a director of, of a public company, which he does right now. He is the executive chairman. He's the chairman of the board of TKO group holdings. Yeah. I think like we, we talked about this last week, the fact that this did not seem to be something that was uh, focused upon too much in the completion of this merger. The fact that this is, something that is still pending. And this would be a pretty widespread uh, article in terms of just shining a light on what is still um, in the, in the midst of going down. Like this is not a past tense story. It is one that, you know, from the, the search warrants and uh, subpoena from July, like this is something that is ongoing and could go very deep. It could go from what I take this to mean beyond simply Vince McMahon and certainly in his capacity to operate as an officer within the company. Like these are all, um, yeah, pretty pretty important factors to be keeping abreast of when it comes to the immediate future for Vince McMahon. Yeah, and it's it's something we've mentioned in passing. As I've said, it's one of the most underreported stories. Is that it? it I think based on what we've seen disclosed in W's own filings, that it feels like Vince McMahon could be indicted any day now. Um, and this is lending credence to that that he really is in in some legal trouble that is not yet resolved. It might end up being nothing. Most grand juries indict. So we'll see what happens if he is the, the subject of this investigation. Um, I've, I've been asked, is there a non-compete? Let's say Vince McMahon ends up getting separated from WB in, in some form. Could he, is he legally bound to any non-compete that would prevent him from, I don't know, starting another wrestling company? Um, it, it doesn't look like it from his uh, apl- employment agreement. He has a new employment agreement as of his, his return to the company in April. Um, that's when his employment agreement is dated. He returned in January. But He's not. He's bound to a non-compete while he's working for the company. Of course, uh, he's probably bound to some sort of non-compete as, as uh, 
connected to him being a member of the board of directors. I can't imagine that um, he's not bound to some non-compete that would prevent him in, in the event that he is separated from WWE. Uh, I would think there would be a period of months, um, at least, where he would not be able to start another wrestling company if that was if that's even a road that he would go down. Well, he would he would have no shortage of options because it's a blossoming field of competitors out there because it was also noted in this article that new and reinvigorated wrestling rivals have entered the ring, including the National Wrestling Alliance. Yes. And All Elite Wrestling, founded by Tony Khan, son of billionaire Shahid Khan, owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham FC in 2019. Pretty much your, you know, one B and one C to WWE or uh, right. NWA and, uh, and AEW. I mean, sure. neck, neck and neck for that number two spot in the U.S. pro wrestling appetite. Sure. Maybe uh, the, the LA Times is watching Fox News and watching Gutfeld and seeing the, mo- the most watched wrestler in all of all of U.S. professional wrestling. The end, well, the former NWA champion. Yeah, walking away from the industry as well. So, I mean, that's that's going to be a gut punch to the NWA as well. Um, anything else you, you took uh, from this article? I mean, there was uh, like a fair amount to it. A lot of it stuff that we, we have discussed kind of going over the allegations, the payments that were made between uh, both uh, the ex-employees and the Donald J. Trump Foundation that ties this all together, what he has uh, reimbursed and and somewhat painting a picture that I don't know if completely accurate of sort of all of these pillars falling down around Vince McMahon between uh, the antitrust suit from MLW, the ongoing investigations that are he is the subject of, and then mentioning where their television audience is versus 2018. And I really don't look at that as some uh, need for concern when it comes to their their television situation. Yeah, I think it was framed as rating, ratings are in decline, which I, I would say that they are not. Um they uh, they did mention the, the, the Trump stuff, in, including the fact that, that there is $5 million in payments that were made to the Trump Foundation, apparently in exchange for his services uh, at WrestleMania 23, and then his appearance a couple of years later on Raw, um, attributed as first reported by the Wall Street Journal. I guess I didn't report it. I, I, I speculated that that, it, that this makes a lot of sense. of it. You, you really did put all the, the breadcrumbs <laughs> out there for everyone to put together. Yes. Um, they talked to Mario Mancini, who who says that he spoke to Rita Chatterton the day after she alleges Vince McMahon raped her in a limo in 1986. So there's a, some quotes there. Again, nothing new, really, but things that he's you know of the nature that he said in the past. Um, the LA Times and Chatterton side declined comment in in the article, right. although. You no, know, we we do know there was the, the recent settlement, and right. whether I that she's bound to an NDA now or something, very well could be the case. Yeah. And um, the LA Times did today in 2023 reach out to, to TKA Group Holdings spokesperson and asked if they had any comment on the 1997 Montreal screw job. And they yeah, did. <laughs> this is a very good feature. But sometimes when when this is like pretty much in order, we're going from like the, the steroid trial to the ring boy scandal, the death of Owen Hart, the Montreal screw job. It's like one of these is not quite like the other. And yeah, I I feel sorry for the poor TKO intern that is now. Uh, being informed by his higher ups, can you get us some information about the Montreal screw job? We need to be abreast of this situation that occurred uh, some 26 years ago. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't mention um, that there's there there is that on the record comment from Ignacio Lode, but there is on background uh, comments yes. from people familiar with the board's investigation. Take that to mean whatever you might think it means, uh, where so- someone close to the board is saying he said and referring to Vince, he said, "Okay, do whatever you guys need to do." This is about the investigation. Uh, I'm not going to stand in your way. Of course, when the board said, well, you know, we think you need to step down, he wasn't happy about it, but he did it. 
Um, and then there's, there's this item about loyalty, right? And McMahon explained to the board that he entered into settlements because he was trying to protect the company against potential litigation. Uh, during one phone call with the board, McMahon said the committee uh, told the committee that, quote, allegations of unwanted sexual advances were false and that all relationships are consensual. He said to another person close to the board, uh, quote, he ex- he's the kind of person who expects loyalty, said someone close to the board of one of the ousted directors, adding that McMahon viewed its investigation as an act of disloyalty, even though the board was doing its job. Sounds like a very familiar friend of Vince McMahon's as well. He demands loyalty. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, th- I mean, it it does kind of like paint this picture like this was not Vince McMahon just uh, stepping away for optics and for the good of the company. Like he he was going against his his will of what I think in a different setting, he would have just uh, doubled down and uh, fought this. And quite honestly, could he have withstood this last summer? He probably could have just given the way he was able to um, return. And this largely went behind him. It's just there continues to be new things surfacing that don't allow Vince McMahon to put this in the rear view, if not for these latest set of investigations that they released and alerted everyone in August. I mean, this would be something that I don't think would be uh, focused on even to this degree that an L.A. Times would be taking a, a deep look unless it was ongoing. Yeah. And I have to think that Ari Emanuel and the people, you know, working for Endeavor are aware of, of these risks, right? They have to be aware. Um, and it's a contrast to Ari Emanuel's comments that he insisted that Vince, this is according to him, but insisted that Vince uh, stay with the company as part of this merger. Um, but I have to think they understand that there's a risk that Vince could be barred from being a, a member of the board. And if that happens, I mean, they, they'll, they'll go forward and they'll, I suppose they'll be fine. Um, but I have to think that's something that they're aware of. Coming up, we are going to be joined by the Wizard of Oz of pro wrestling media, Bill from WrestleTix, the man behind WrestleTix. He will be joining us uh, in about 20 minutes' time, and we're going to save our discussion about Grand Slam uh, with, with Bill as we will be going through what's been uh, quite the last couple of days for the push for tonight's third Grand Slam event at Arthur Ashe Stadium. As uh, wrestling fans will enter the stadium, and we will see if this event clocks past the 12.40 a.m. mark that it went to last year. Did it go that late? Wow. 12.40 a.m. Uh, one Davey Portman uh, tapped out this year. He was he was not making a return to New York after uh, what was all, all the events he's gone to. He's not going to this one. That, that was it. That's The man has his limits. Um, so we will chat with uh, Bill a little bit later on about that. But a few other topics uh, to get to. Uh, sort of just some of your thoughts, Brandon, about the... The merger fallout over the last week or so, and we had uh, the the firings that went down on Friday, reportedly over 100 members of the staff gone. And then this week, uh, there was a all-employee meeting held on Tuesday where Vince McMahon did make an appearance at WWE headquarters. And we are moving on into the uh, the TKO phase and se- several notable names that, that have come out. Maybe the biggest one from an executive level being Jamie Horowitz, who was a pretty polarizing figure throughout his tenure in WWE. Right. He was with Fox Sports previously. Um, he left, I believe it's Fox that he left, right? That he left. Under. He was with ESPN originally, went to Fox Sports, and then had a brief tenure at The Zone before he was hired. Right. And, and he left, I believe it's Fox, under allegations of sexual yes. harassment. Um, but he was the, the EVP of digital and development with WWE. He was there for a couple of years in the Nikon era. Um, he's out as part of this. Uh, Catherine Newman, who is the EVP of marketing, is also out. So I think those those are the two 
most senior people, most uh, you know, high-ranking people in WWE that are out, but over 100 employees, according, according to Sean Ross Sapp, have been laid off. Um, graphics, marketing, even uh, I, I was told production had a few unexpected layoffs that were a part of this. Yeah, I mean, it's... It... It was pretty much a gutting. Like when you're talking about a company of this many hundred employees and you're axing a hundred or so of them, like that's a really significant portion. Uh, I've not heard of anything on the UFC side. If the cuts made its way there, I think that probably we would have heard of by now if there was yeah. anything on the, on the UFC side. And not to state either that I know that Nick Khan sent out his message that, you know, the, we, we are done with the, uh, the reductions as they call them. Um, who is to say if there is ever uh, sort of a um, a ripple effect down down the road that there are additional cuts? Workforce reductions. Workforce reduction. Yes, synergies. Yes, they're all just you know what what a great accomplishment for us that we were able to create these synergies. Right. So, W has over eight hundred employees as of their annual report at the end of last year. I believe that would be as of December last year. So they they cut at least a hundred. Um, I've been seeing, as I said last week, I've been seeing a lot of employees on LinkedIn just you know mentioning that they they started a new job working you know some other places before any of this. So maybe there is there's some employees being proactive and looking for work elsewhere. Um, so who, who knows what the, the headcount is now? Something well under 800, I would think. Um, but it wouldn't be surprising if there if TKO can, continues to evaluate how many employees they really need and maybe does another round of cuts um, months from now. One thing I was thinking about, and I, I, I feel like they're almost they're, they're too distant to maybe have this connection. But who knows in these kind of creative ways that they come up. But as you see, you know, Dana White is continuing to make a big push. He wants to get the more of these performance institutes up around the world. Could you see something where a performance center and a performance institute? that there is something of where we can put these under one roof or do you feel that would be something that would just be too difficult? Because this is like, those are significant undertakings of like building up these gyms all around the, the world that, you know, both companies in essence are attempting to do. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting thought. I mean, like they're in terms of the brand crossover, like I've said, if, if, I'm UFC. I want to be careful about how much I'm cross-promoting WWE, at least in my content. Um, but it certainly makes sense to share a facility, at least financially. That that's a, that's more convincing, right? Because facilities are expensive and utilities are expensive. Um, it might make sense, yeah, if they're just sharing the same real estate. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, probably one of many uh, areas you can look at, just in terms of you know what. What can we make for a more affordable amount? And that's certainly a costly one. Also costly for WWE are going to be this writer's strike, which has now resulted in ABC picking up 10 additional Monday night games throughout this season. And how are the Bills week two? Uh, the Bills won. The Bills defeated uh, Nick Khan's Las Vegas Raiders um, pretty, pretty soundly, uh, much better. The, this maybe is not WCW all over again. But uh, the Bills, obviously, week one, they were a draw on Monday night. Huge draw. Yeah, huge. Nothing to do with Aaron Rodgers. I think I think this is... Uh, well, he was out from the beginning of the game, so he, he never played again. That's it. Only only in that first quarter hour. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we are going to get... Uh, well, this past Monday, we had two Monday night games airing on... Uh, we had the ESPN and ESPN2 broadcast, and then an ABC broadcast 
That was simulcast on ESPN Plus. And for the rest of the season, we're going to have the Monday night games airing on both ESPN and ABC. And the result two weeks in has been the two least watched episodes of Raw, save for a best of episode last December. This has not been great early news for this season and maybe quite a difficult one for Raw all of a sudden that will be going up against uh, network and cable NFL competition. Right. It, like on, on the surface, you wouldn't think, you know, just putting a, another game, putting the game on an additional channel, even if it is broadcast, it is ABC, that that would drive so much more viewership. But it, but it does. It leads to at least a, a few million more people watching the game. This most recent week was different. This was two different games, one yes. on ABC, one on one ESPN. Um, Which they yeah, will have to deal with again next Monday as well. They're doing the, the two game format next week too. Okay, are they? Yeah, but uh, it's, it's going to make things more difficult. I mean, the, um, if I can show it here, the, the decline in 18 and 49, if you want to spin it, was not as bad. It was about even, slightly, slightly down from the same period, the same episode uh, last year in the same week. Um, but you know, it, you, you can't deny it. It's the the lowest, the least watched Raw ever. That's not a best of episode. Uh, so it's going to be tough for Raw for the rest of the season, probably. It was interesting to see. It was the the younger audience was not down. This seemed to be a function right. of your 50 plus audience that was not watching raw that led to the overall viewership decline because 18 to 49, they were up over the, uh, the bills jets game from, from the week prior. Um, and I mean, outside of football, like th- this is a pretty terrible number by raw standards, but still is beating everything, but, but football on Monday nights. Right. And then this is particular to raw. Like we're, we've seen, if you can, if you're watching a video, you can see where it's been positive comparisons for most of this year until sometime in the middle of August where we started, started to see some negative comparisons year over year, uh, in the same week. And that's continuing as the football season has started and, and, you know, you're working from an even lower base level versus last year. Yeah. And I mean, I was speaking about this with Way on Monday, the idea that, how many other networks are going to just be in this copycat method of taking a cable property and simulcasting it. And a lot of people can fall into the trap of, well, if it works for the NFL, it's got to certainly work for us as well. And NBC is not going to have this, this option because they do have the voice coming back next Monday, but just throwing out the option that could very well be seen in this next contract cycle is at least the experiment of a week where you put raw, whether it's the full show, whether it's two hours on NBC. Like, do you see that drawing any kind of meaningful audience on NBC in addition to the USA Network audience? I, I think it's worth experimenting, but I wouldn't be too high on what that would attract on NBC. You would have to, you'd have to assume it's going to attract if it's worth doing, you, you want it to, to do better than whatever you're programming there. Otherwise, um, I think we've talked about this in the past and that, that the voice is on NBC on Monday nights yes. and, and maybe that's starting back up soon. So it's back next Monday. It's probably not doing what the voice does. So it's not kicking the voice out of that spot. Um, but, but Monday Night Football has not been the only program, only live event that has been simulcast on multiple networks. We've seen that a lot with, I think, even with award shows. Um, March Madness did that. The NBA All-Star Game did that. Um, even, even some airings of Yellowstone have been aired across all of the Paramount networks, uh, simultaneously or a lot of them, I should say. I did want to ask your thoughts on the, the collision numbers. This was from Saturday night. So this was again, going against uh, a slew of college football games. And at least in the, in the key numbers here, it was almost 
the exact same as the week prior. They did 467,000 viewers and again, a 0.15 in the 18 to 49 audience. Now, if you look under the hood of some of these numbers, there was a disastrous 18 to 34 drop in specific with men, which fell like 72% from the week before. This was their lowest 18 to 34 number ever. And it was a massive decline that these numbers kind of camouflage, but there was a huge tune out of young males for collision on Saturday night. Yeah. So we're talking about how many viewers there, 35,000. Um, and when we get into the, the, the smaller demos, I'm kind of like, you know, there's when the measurement is so small, that measurement is based on a sample. So we're talking about a, a small sample to, to, to determine a small measurement that is extrapolated onto the population. So the point being, I, I wonder if there's just a lot of volatility that's natural to happen when you're dealing with such a small number of people to begin with. Um, but it, it really highlights how much the WPLEs are affecting uh, AEW collision when you know you look at payback and, and it did basically a rampage number against payback. And uh, it, based, it, it was also uh, outpaced by Rampage when it went against uh, SummerSlam. But I think this gives you an idea of what it's going to do against college football for the, for the rest of the year, I guess. Yeah, and we theorized last week what a NXT event is going to do against Collision, which we'll see on September 30th. And they are stacking this show. They have now added Becky Lynch to the No Mercy show. You have got... Um, Carmelo Hayes in, in the main event with Ilya Dragunov, Dominic Mysterio's in a match, Baron Corbin's in a match. Um, but Becky is the, the key person on this show as well. So that's going to be an interesting experiment to see if Collision holds up uh, significantly better against NXT or if it does take a, a, a chunk out of it. Because then they have a regular WWE PLE the very next uh, Saturday, which will be streaming on Peacock as opposed to Max, which is going to be shortly introducing a brand new sports tier and first of all brandon will you be jumping on board and getting this sports tier i guess i don't need it because everything that they're showing is still going to be on tnt and T- tbs yeah, so. there's nothing exclusive on this sports tier as um, yeah. they're going to attempt to uh i guess balance their the cable distributors with their their streaming plans and not piss off anybody but this will not include any aew content at least no. From the, from the beginning point, but uh, this will feature like Major League Baseball playoffs, and then the free trial ends at the end of February, so that they can charge you ten bucks when March Madness begins. And, and that, is that the price point? It's ten additional dollars on nine ninety nine. But you've you've got to be a max subscriber first just right. to get this sports tier, and then that would be an additional cost. And if you're like, say, you're a cable customer who is only particular, you know, you're interested in that stuff. You're not interested in a lot else that's being offered by your cable system that may be, you know, just an extra $10 or, you know, whatever the, I guess it's like another $10 or something like that for, for max. Right. Um, maybe that's enough to tip you over to, to cut the cord. So if you're one of these cables carriers and you're, and you're spending, you know, something like you're, you're paying uh WBD, you know, a few dollars per subscriber, which comes out to, millions and millions of dollars um, for the, for their cable networks. Um, would you be happy that, that this is happening? Um, I, I feel these, uh, you know, we, we had the sort of uh, the, the Disney charter dispute that I think is going to somewhat lead the way for a, a lot of this thinking moving forward is that for these, these networks, it's trying to carve this path towards this streaming future that they see. And these cable distributors that are finally going to 
least put their foot down as much as they can about we are paying you for what and you are now watering down what we are paying for and giving people a pathway out. Like to your point, if you're someone that only is getting your TBS TNT because you're a sports fan, uh, this is a more inexpensive way to like, if that's something you're holding on to, it's, it's a reason to circumvent cable. Yeah, we've seen so I'm looking at like what the price of we've seen some regional sports networks like the Yes Network, which is the network that carries the Yankees games. They're they're offering it's twenty five dollars per month if you if you want the streaming version of the Yes Network. That's a pretty high price point. And I think that's on purpose to say, look, we're not gonna undercut the the cable systems that that carry this, which you know, I'm I'm sure they're charging less than twenty five dollars a month for the Yes Network. Um but this is pretty manageable. This is a pretty low price point. Um I was going to tweet this, but I, I decided not to because I knew everyone would not interpret it. But like, well, maybe they're just, you know, there's no AEW on this max. Uh, it's going to be called Bleacher Report, I understand too, by the way. Yes. But, but so maybe they're just relying on AEW to carry all the, uh, to justify all the carriage fees from, from now on. The AEW networks, TNT and TBS, they'll go through a yes. rebranding period. Yes. Well, and this does coincide with a report from Andrew Zarian, who believes that by next year, that AEW will have a deal on Max and expects them to go to a, a monthly pay-per-view model, which, I mean, we're kind of seeing the soft launch of that as we speak. Like, this is pretty much a monthly um, pay-per-view model that AEW is introducing to us with the addition of Wrestle Dream, with the Ring of Honor pay-per-views. Like, we have had a pay-per-view every month since uh, March. Yeah. Like, I think if you go well, through this the, year, I think we have pretty much... Maybe with the exception of one or two months, I think we've had a pay-per-view There's, every month. There was one in July, right? There was a Ring of Honor pay-per-view There was July. a Ring of Honor pay-per-view in July. Yeah, there are two in August. Two in August. Yeah. So There will be no pay-per-view in September, right? But there's two in August, you could say. It averages out to one a month. But yeah, I think that's, that's part of a new TV deal. Um, and maybe there's some reason why there's, there's something contingent on the new TV deal that is holding up AEW from being on max at this point. Maybe there's some, some complicated issue there. Um, but I do expect that to be part of a new TV deal. The pay-per-views next day rights for the weekly shows, which have no home currently and, and the rest of the library, which basically has no home either. Well, maybe a year from now we will be talking about AEW's return to Arthur Ashe Stadium for the first pay-per-view edition of Grand Slam. And here to chat all things Grand Slam and ticket-related, this is like the Wizard of Oz joining us now. He is Bill from WrestleTix, who is here with us and sporting a, a Buffalo-themed shirt here for uh, loyalty to Brandon. Hello, Bill. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yes. It's, it's, great, it's great to prove to everyone now that we are not the same person. Yes, there's going to be there's strangely enough some people out there who insist uh, WrestleTix is run by Brandon Thurston. So, wow. so, so WrestleTix is not a Brandon Thurston burner account after <laughs> no. years. Well, first of all, we'll, we'll get into some of the the current stuff, Bill. But just give us a little bit of your background and how you started WrestleTix going, because I think you got on most people's radar right towards the end of the pandemic, where there was a heightened interest in seeing what was the return to crowds going to be like and having like reliable tracking systems um, that you have really made that your beat. Yeah. So before the pandemic is when I really started tracking things um, uh, like kind of just as, as a hobby. And after the pandemics, when I tracked it full time, but uh, yeah, so for, for a, for a while, I had a uh, an account on Twitter that just tracked AEW shows because their maps were a little bit easier. They they just had you know at the time they were running maybe some smaller venues, and I, I didn't 
So I was using different software, trying different things, and uh, just took an interest to doing it. And then uh, I figured out a better way to do it through Ticketmaster using uh, JavaScript, a programming language. And then WWE shows were just as easy to track. So I started doing that, and I've been a wrestling fan my whole life and been following the business uh, for, for a long time. So uh, just out of nowhere, is, uh, you know, I just – was, I've always been fascinated with uh, the business side of it. So um, once I figured out that I could get into these maps and, you know, it, it took it took a long time to really learn uh, about certain aspects of how they set up the arena and how they configure it for TV and for house shows and how it's different and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that's that's really the story is I started doing this before the pandemic for a while. And then I decided, all right, I'm going to start tracking this full time for both of the um, major promotions in, in North America. I, I still do the occasional New Japan show when they're, when they're over here, or if there's a big indie show when GCW did the Hammerstein Ballroom, that was that was fun to uh, follow that. So that's pretty much the backstory. Yeah, and with, for, for, for people who may not know, like you, you're using coding to do this. I got, we're going to have to talk about coding for a second. And that, like, I, I remember, you know, kind of thinking like, this is possible, like looking at Ticketmaster maps or whatever and thinking, you know, you, you could clearly, you can see what the dots are. You could do this. And, uh, I think, you know, probably around the time you'd started WrestleTicks or maybe a little before that, I was like, maybe this is something I was just learning how to, to code and still am, but like thinking that this is something that, that could be done. And, uh, but thank God you, you've done it. It's way too much work for, for me to take on as well. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely a lot of work, but yeah, it was once, once I figured that out, it, um, there's still a lot of manual work. I wish I could, um, yeah. program all of it and automate it, but, uh, there's just so many different things that can happen during the course of the day that, uh, it would be, it'd be difficult to uh, automate at all. So, um, still a lot of manual work involved. Because you, but, you have to determine like what's actually being put on the market for sale and what is actually just being held back and, and things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just go off the entire map, um, because a lot of maps will just give every section, even the ones that aren't open. So it's, it's up to, you know, to you to, just, to figure out what's been open. And if you're following along from the pre-sales and stuff, it's, it's, uh, that's something that's kind of easy to figure out. But as it goes along, of course, as demand increases for shows, they open up new sections like in the upper deck and on the hard cam side. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's usually how it goes. Have you started to see any kind of large picture trends over the, these past two years as we have seen the companies and yeah, kind of various strategies that you've just mentioned. And especially when it comes to sort of big stadium scale events of, what these companies are doing to kind of maximize interest. And like, this is as much like a marketing tool for them as it is a function of their business. It's like projecting oh, all of these, you know, bu business success stories. Yeah. So the trends have kind of flipped from when I started tracking full time. Uh, like for example, pre-sales, uh, AEW did just, you know, their biggest numbers were during the pre-sales and WWE would typically do not, like almost under a thousand for a lot of shows for the pre-sales. And I would wonder like, okay, that's kind of interesting. But then as time picked up local advertising and stuff, you would see the distributed account go up uh, as the show drew closer. Um, but that's kind of flipped now. Uh, if you looked at some of the recent first counts uh, for WWE shows, now they're, they're actually, they're um, doing considerably better on their, on their pre-sales than they were before. And for AEW, some of the recent uh, pre-sales haven't been as strong. 
not nearly as strong as, as the past. So, and then they're kind of pushing more tickets late now. So it, that, that trend's kind of flipped. Um, for the bigger shows, WWE is definitely, they've got a very interesting strategy. Now you're not going to see, uh, first day sellouts for their stadium shows anymore because they're, the way they're pricing the floor and the lower bowl, um, there's just, they're, they're so expensive and that's why they're making these massive gates. Now they're going to sell out all the upper decks. Um, and they're going to let, you know, the brokers get those seats if they can, um, uh, because they're the most affordable ones. Like even like Royal Rumble, looking back at January, uh, I think, you know, for a lot of my updates, they had several thousand tickets left, but the reality was, is none of them were underneath, uh, like 200 bucks. Uh, so they price everything pretty high in those lower sections. And it, the strategy's working, so it's no longer brokers or scalpers making that money. They, they've smartened up; they're doing it. I mean, look at WrestleMania right now; uh, they've they've sold whatever they put out for the most part, and the remaining tickets are really expensive. So I've got a lot of people asking, "Oh, when are they going to release more?" Um, I believe they have a certain amount held back that they're slowly releasing. Uh, so this is a an interesting strategy because if you look at the map for Mania in Philadelphia at Lincoln Field. If you just look at it, it looks like it's sold out the way it's, uh, the tickets are sold and the resale tickets are on the map. Uh, but they're, they're definitely holding some back and strategically releasing them. And they're not cheap, but it's, uh, it's a strategy that's working for them for the last few dome shows, the last few stadium shows. Uh, they're, they're, they're making a killing. And, uh, so again, you're not going to see like, uh, like, first day sellouts and that's, you know, by design. So they're, you know, that's, that's something that they've kind of done in the last few years. It wasn't like that when I first started tracking them. So, um, uh, other than that, yeah. I mean, other trends that, uh, I picked up on, I mean, house shows and everything for WWE has just been so incredibly strong. Uh, there's only been like a handful amount of shows where that, where they haven't beat the last time here, uh, that stat that I usually put on post the um, the last time at that building, I can only think of maybe two shows in, in, the, in this year where they haven't beat that number. So uh, they've just been killing it. Some house shows, like they got a house show uh, this weekend. That's you know going to be 8,000 really strong numbers last weekend. They had one over 7,000. So uh, there was a point where after the pandemic um, they had, you know, a little, there was a, a little down period for the house shows and they actually canceled five house shows last year. I'd show you how quickly things can turn around. Um, and some of them were canceled because of slow starts, slow advances. And, uh, yeah, that's just completely turned around since the success of the bloodline storyline and everything else, Cody coming over. So, um, the house show business is booming for them. Yeah. And just to, to the point you're making about, ticket prices and it's something that we discussed. Like, I think the way that, you know, we historically think about pro wrestling ticket sales doing really well is like, it's an instant sellout, which all in 2018 is a good example of that, right? Where, you know, 10,000 tickets roughly sold out within a half an hour or whatever it was. But now they're at the risk of just repeating what you said. They're, they're because of secondary market sellers who are going to make the money if you don't. They're, they're pricing it in such a way that we don't see these sort of complete sellouts like you might expect. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think there was like uh Dave Meltzer wrote about it once. Uh, there was a show in Orlando 
that AEW ran a pay-per-view. And he uh, wrote a big story about how much money the scalpers supposedly made from that. It was uh, six figures, allegedly. <laughs> Ever since that, it seems like the, the pricing model for AEW pay-per-views has gone up. But now I'm not going to say that's the, the only reason, but I'll never forget that article because it was interesting. I mean, a lot of tickets were scooped up, and uh, that was just an, an interesting show at the time anyways they made some mistakes with pricing on in some sections but yeah like pricing is important and you think about tonight's show in arthur ash stadium um the first one they did the announced attendance of 20,177 uh, i had a little over 19,000 for that show and uh that was in 2021 and then last year's show did 13,000 321 tickets distributed. They didn't announce attendance, but it was the first million dollar TV gate for the company. So if you think about that, they made um, far more money than they did with less people mm-hmm. than the first time there. Um, uh, tonight's show, it'll be interesting uh, if if uh, if a gate is mentioned at some point because they did have extremely high ticket prices for the lower bowl. And the floor, and some of those are still left, but they moved a lot of them today. But I'm just not sure if they moved them at that price. Uh, I fully expected those to come down a lot. There was uh, floor seats. You, for, you remember the prices? Yeah, 597 for the floor wow. seats, and I think it was 247 for the um, next level up. Uh, not cheap for a you know a TV show. I know that this this card's kind of promoted as uh, you know almost like a pay per view card. So, but still, you know, like. I think Johnny said it at the beginning of the show or right before I came on that it wouldn't surprise me at all if this becomes a pay-per-view next year. I always thought it should have been using this venue. Um, I, I thought it should have been that way. But, yeah, so going back to your point, Brandon, about ticket prices and all that, it's an interesting question. What would you prefer uh, as far as, you know, as a promoter? Would you rather have more people in the building, make it look full, 20,000 people, or – the year after you do 13,000 looks still looks good on TV, especially the way they shoot things nowadays, but you make a lot more money. Um, Perception is important. I think nowadays. So I, you know, I want to rent out the UFC apex for Mark Zuckerberg and a few of his friends. And we can have five people on that television broadcast and just let, <laughs> let them pay uh, an ungodly amount. That, that would be it. <laughs> well, I mean, people are looking at this graph and certainly like this year's, I mean, it's not going to reach last year's uh, amount of, of tickets distributed. But if we were to look at that number a week ago, like they've had some sizable movement over these last seven days. I'm just curious, Bill, what you would uh, attribute some of that to, because I don't think it's, it's one uh, factor. But what have you observed in the last couple of days that have led to them kind of at, at the doorstep of 10,000 tickets? So August 12th through September fifth or so um i I keep track uh i have a a daily tracker for certain events and i normally do this for the biggest pay-per-views i did it for all in and i've got one for wrestlemania and a few others where i literally track the available count every single night to see what the movement's been like each day and uh through that date range um there was it was there was such little movement at that time like literally 25 tickets or less per day and uh, then suddenly from that point, things kicked up once they started doing local advertising. Uh, that was, and they started uh, like building the card, making match announcements and stuff like that. And and then obviously the biggest amount of movement was this week when they uh, did all their media and even more uh, local advertising, I assume. But so that's really was the difference maker. Uh, and of course, uh, I should mention there was a buy one, get one free offer. That's made a big difference for them. 
uh, if you look at those sections on the map, they're about half gone or more, each one of them. So it worked. You need a code for it. Um, so like those factors, I think it's, it's important to maybe establish that local presence earlier. Uh, maybe, maybe do that, buy one, get one offer sooner. But, uh, I mean, it was, it was a strong last minute push, maybe waited a little bit too long, but, uh, I would say the, the biggest mistake from the beginning was just overpricing certain sections, in particular the floor and, uh, the, you know, the lower bowl parts, uh, definitely were too high because once they reduced, uh, the sections above, uh, the, mm, not, not the floor, not the lowest section, but there's one other, the, they reduced those from like 150 to 30 bucks. And those literally went like the next two days. Those were all gone. So it was just about the price point. I think for a lot of yeah, people, it would, it would seem like the card had interest or does have interest. And yeah, it was just, you know, sticker shock from some people, which it's, uh, let's, you know, they were obviously aiming for a super high gate here. And I think it's, it's at a time when it's just the, the company is colder than it was a, a year ago. And that goes beyond just, tonight's show but i mean when we look at just the u.s picture at the moment like it it, it does paint a picture of a company that has has lost something with the audience whether it's just characters not connecting in the same way repeats in the market like there is and the fact that there is a a greater demand for what is the industry leader in in wwe in a lot of these markets too well one of the coolest things about what i do is i get to hear from the ticket buyers um and right away and not just in small sample sizes so for every after this pre-sale for this show uh i got an unusual amount of comments about you know people upset about the pricing they wanted to sit in lower seats but they weren't going to be paying mm-hmm. um, multiple hundreds of dollars compared to the previous years so i, do, I mean do you remember what the ticket prices were say for the first grand slam or even last year um i mean last year probably wasn't too far off maybe just a little bit lower than this but so I, I don't remember those off the top of my head. Um, the first year was was definitely, I mean, had to be considerably lower than the second and, year. And that was the first million-dollar gate, right? Last year's show. Last year's show was. The so, first yeah. year was just shy of a million. I think it was like 960. It was like really close. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, prices had to be much more reasonable for the first show for to have 6,000 less people or whatever and, and not hit a million. I'd throw this last up. Year's. I throw this out to to both of you. I can start with with Brandon. Like, do you feel that long term there's an impact to that fan that does go out the first week, buys say their hundred and fifty dollar ticket, and then sees those prices reduced to thirty? Or do you feel that's just that's that's just the game, and fans accept that? Do you think like there's a long term impact on that for what you would think are some of your most loyal fans that are spending these high line prices and then seeing the company itself value them significantly less as we get closer? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be mad if I paid a couple hundred dollars for a ticket and then a couple months later it was it was available for like half that cost or something like that. That's that does seem like it's punishing your most hardcore fans for buying early. Um, I I I don't I don't know to what degree that's happening, and then Bill might know better. Um, but it, it does seem like it's something that's you know it's it's punishing rather than rewarding people for for being early and paying a lot. Um, but yeah, it's um. Yeah. So, Bill, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, I feel like you know, yesterday on Twitter, I made the mistake of saying they would lower those prices today on those floor seats, and I, you know, maybe putting that out there publicly. I I don't. I haven't seen it yet, and maybe they don't want to do that because that will 
upset people who purchase tickets uh, at that price. I mean, enough, you know, some enough people have, and to those that have bought those uh, tickets at full price, at least they have reached out to me. They weren't as mad about it. You know, they just said, ah, I got the tickets. I'm, you know, I'm excited for the show. Um, but so long-term, yeah, I, I think you gotta be really careful with that. You gotta definitely try to price that right next year. And because you can't just keep lowering the prices, then it teaches your uh, ticket uh, buying audience to wait till the end, you know, and it's kind of risky to do that. I, I just feel like uh, you got to price it right from the beginning if you can. And, you know, they, they wanted, they priced it to make another million dollar TV gate. And, uh, you know, I can't blame them. This is probably still a very significant revenue source for them until the next TV contract. So, uh, but yeah, as far as, you know, the ticket, your ticket buyers in the area, you, you don't want to make that habit. And I, it makes sense just based on a supply and demand sense to price the tickets to what the secondary markets are going to get for it. If you don't put it, make, make it that price as, as face value. So I think some of the, the complaints about the ticket prices being too high are just what they are to begin with. I think that's a separate issue from talking about changing the prices as, as the event goes on and doesn't meet the demand that you expected it to meet. Um, but I think, you know, ho- hopefully there are still tickets that are, you know, on the map somewhere that are something that most people can afford. Um, but a lot of this is just fighting against the, the secondary market sellers who are simply just, you know, exploiting greater demand than, than might be expected. So that's another thing about this show. What's interesting is there's more and more shows on Ticketmaster now that have the all-in pricing model where fees are basically baked in. So you're not getting um, a $20 ticket, but with $18 fees tacked on at the end. If it says 30 bucks for the ticket, which they do have upper decks available, and those have actually been moving pretty well since uh, two days ago. Um, they, they're 30 bucks, I believe. Um, so really, they're whatever, 10 bucks plus fees, um, 20 bucks plus fees, excuse me. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's always important to have a low price point available for people. Uh, I've seen it with WWE over the years where they move uh, a tremendous amount of $20 tickets late. And that was something I advocated for AEW to do in the past uh, year or so. And ever since Collision, they have uh, lowered that price point to $20 for a lot of the shows. Uh, as soon as Right around that time, Collision started touring. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it was right around that time. Whereas when I saw the $20 tickets start coming in for a lot of their shows. Now, they don't do it for every single arena. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, cost to rent and everything like that has something to do with it. So some arenas, they probably just can't do that. Or they can justify that. But uh, I think it's important to have that low price point. I'm seeing it more. I've seen it throughout the years, even when WWE wasn't hot they could still move a lot of those $20 tickets late. With the addition of collision, one of the big questions has been, will having collision year round start to, to dilute the value of, of tickets for, for dynamite. I'm, I'm looking at a, a chart that I've made out of, out of your data and dynamite for the last several months is just sort of hovering around the 5,000 range, but there are advances looking forward, obviously, that I don't have as great of a handle on. But like, do you see in the advances anything that tells you having two weekly shows is going to start to diminish at least dynamite? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look at the Montreal advances for the uh, pre-sales that just happened last week. Uh, I believe it was 3500 for dynamite and just 1900 for collision. 
So you'd like to see for the first time in that market, I expect Montreal to do really well for AEW, you know, I'm, I'm surprised it's not doing better than that. Uh, but if you look at the map, there's a, you know, the, there's one thing that really stands out for dynamite is the cheapest sections all sold out. There's like three of them there and there, there's no tickets left in them. But um, as far as other advances, yeah, there's definitely, uh, that was my concern with collision. Uh, and especially if it doesn't, I, I'm just not sure if it's established enough with its own identity to do well on its own. And uh, now it's, forcing AEW to go into new markets and stuff like that with a show that isn't perceived as, I'm not sure what is perceived as, but, but maybe it's not the A brand to some fans. So how is it going to do consistently? Uh, we'll see. We'll see as time goes on. Um, but right now, some of the advances for Dynamite and, and uh, Salt Lake City is kind of weak. Uh, it was like 1600 last time I checked. Independence, Missouri, you know, that's, it's not going to be a, your strongest market, anyways, but it's it's under two thousand. Um, Toledo, yeah, fifteen hundred right now. Yeah, yeah. Toledo, I think was at like seventeen hundred or yep. close to it. Philadelphia, you'd like to see Philly. Um, that that's you should see five thousand Philadelphia, and they're at twenty four hundred right now. Yeah, yep. but it, some markets like for dynamite, I think a healthy number. You just know these numbers in your head. You remember them? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I look at these maps every day, so. <laughs> For my process, I have to track uh, anywhere from 50 to 70 shows that are in the future. So uh, every day I have to check on at least like 9 to 12 maps and some of these numbers just stand people, out to me. People expect me to be that way about ratings, but I'm not. But that, that's impressive. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so some of the advances, yeah. You, I mean, like even some of the shows that just happened. I mean, Cincinnati was was not a good number, you know. It was I, and it's a tough one to explain. You know, ticket prices weren't ridiculous for that one. Twenty seven hundred. Yeah, yeah, and they did great the first time in the market. Or they did fine, I should say. You know, I think if I recall, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight thousand or something like that. And that was at the college venue. Uh, so, yeah, I. And these are fairly like big arenas. They're running on top of it, like Cleveland. They were just at the like the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, like the Heritage Bank Arena in Cincinnati. Like these are like. The A-list venues that they're running in these cities as well. So it's not just the number, but it's also the size of the venue um, that they're booking, which is sometimes tough to take that step back if you want to want to scale back and just worry about your perception of going to you know whatever the B building is in, in, in the city, for instance. It, it somewhat suggests to me that there there is a a growing number of fans that are discerning between what they see as important and wanting to go to the event that is going to have the level of an importance. They can put tickets on sale for a forbidden door and immediately there's an audience for that. And we get an immediate sellout in, in Toronto. And I, I, I would think that with Montreal, like if it was a pay-per-view, I think you'd have a, a much bigger advance for, for that market. You would certainly look at Montreal as one of those last remaining cities for AEW to hit in North America that I would have that kind of response. But you know, putting all in aside, like Forbidden Door might be their strongest brand. And what what do you feel is sort of the the strategy for for next year? And where you go in a in a U.S. market for something that you would aim at? You know, your your largest audience for what is your biggest like U.S. based pay per view? Uh, oh, for for United States, uh, that's tough. Chicago. <laughs> I think fans are are tired of. Uh, Chicago being featured so much for so many of the events, but um, 
guess you have to reevaluate after this year to see what your strongest markets are. I'm happy they did Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle for Russell Dream, although it was an odd strategy to do uh, Collision first and not do a combo package for both. And uh, so I know some fans were like, oh, wait, I didn't know we were getting a pay-per-view too. And uh, so, and, and that right now looks like it could be one of the lower pay-per-views in the history of the company. It's it just passed 5,000. I expect it'll, you know, increase as we get there. Maybe they can do between six and 7,000, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, if you look at some of the advances as far as like, would I do um, a big stadium show next year in the United States? Probably not. I don't think now's the time to do that. You know, I think uh, doing all in, in London's is probably uh, the best bet. And uh, as far as is, like, is Arthur Ashe Stadium a guarantee? Now? I, I know it's hard to look a year into the, into the future, but if like we're seeing sort of a, a consistency here of what we're going through through these months, uh, like do, do you second guess like an Arthur Ashe Stadium if it's a similar level of um, in, interest level uh, nine months from now? That's a great question. Uh, I, I would have to see it through uh, as a pay per view first of all, and then just uh, adjusting the whole the pricing model for the show next year. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's those are two things you could do that could help draw a big audience and do a healthy gate for them. Um, but Texas, so they do, they do some numbers, uh, decent numbers in Texas too. So finding uh, maybe a venue that they've, whether it's in Dallas, they've had some success there. So in Garland, uh, so they could, they could probably find a, you know, trying to think like AT&T in San Antonio maybe, but I'm not sure, you know, um, what would be the best one? They got people there. They'll be looking through, you know, they have all this data and make pretty well-informed decisions on it. So it, it'll just, uh, I can't give you a great answer as far as like, what would be the best option for like the biggest show possible in the States. But um, I, I like the idea like of, of making uh, forbidden door. I, too bad they didn't save Montreal for that. I thought that mm-hmm. you know that could have been a good idea, um, but they might just go back to Toronto and hope to sell it out again. And when we look at since the return to touring in, in summer 2021, I th- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when they started, they were doing a lot of sort of mid-sized venues, maybe venues where you know a college basketball team plays or something like that. And now they've moved on to. I'm just looking at the list of, of some of the recent buildings they've run, uh, including obviously the United Center. Uh, Rupp Arena is a, I think it's a college venue actually, but it's pretty big. Um, I think they're running a lot of NBA and NHL, uh, arenas where, and now they're drawing something like 4,000, maybe as much as 5,000 or 3,000. And, you know, that's not filling the, the venue completely. Uh, it's leaving a lot of empty seats, which probably diminishes the atmosphere and the appearance and adds to the expense. Um, it, it, kind of makes sense doesn't it to maybe look at smaller venues and am i right about seeing a sort of a a progression into larger venues over time yeah some of it's market dependent too like i don't know if they can find a big venue in independence missouri or some of these other areas that are going to be in uh broomfield colorado using that uh smaller venue one last time coming up i believe next week um but so there's a few other elements to this uh, conversation. I feel like logistically there are, there are some positives to AEW using these big arenas. Uh, like even the one in Cincinnati, for example, a lot of these NBA NHL sized arenas are uh, more central to the city and easier to get to. Um, 
and logistically easier to load into. Uh, I'm sure there's advantages from that standpoint too. So, um, uh, you know, there's, they, they have the reasons for wanting to do it. Uh, Raphael mentioned on talk is Jericho that Tony preferred using the, the bigger arenas. So yeah, but as far I, I've just seen it where it, they are using more NBA sized arenas now. Um, but, uh, I think it's, it's really dependent on the market. So, um, I don't know if they'll go back to using, um, smaller arenas or if they would choose smaller ones just because of their stage is, is, is so big, you know? Um, like I said, I, I always wondered why they didn't go to certain venues that were smaller to midsize. And from what I was told is because, you know, maybe the lighting grid is will work in that size uh, venue, you know, and I, I, maybe loading in is just too much of a challenge. So there's just different challenges that they face with the smaller venues they use, uh, you know, so, uh, that that's as far as I know, as far as like, you know, would they consider going back to smaller ones? Uh, it'll depend, I guess, on how the rest of the year goes and how, you know, if it, we'll see how it goes. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch a bit upon like WWE and it just seems week after week, especially the, these SmackDown numbers are through the roof. When did you first detect like this kind of momentum shift like when when were the 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 tickets like something that you, you were seeing like real movement that would that was showing that the television product was translating into people going out and buying tickets yeah they've been uh on fire it actually really started even before the uh Vince allegations hit so even before the bloodline uh storyline heated up and everything like that that's where people i think give the most credit to but before then you saw signs of pay-per-views and stuff like that starting to heat up. I believe it was in 2021 where they did the Royal Rumble at the Dome in St. Louis. And it wasn't like this huge number, but they took a chance at the time when business wasn't at its hottest. And uh, they I, they even used like half half the uh, the venue. But – and then you look at them a year later and they're, uh, you know, they're filling up a similar size uh, venue like that. But yeah, the, you could see it's, it's been a, uh, it's not been overnight or anything like that. It was definitely just a, a slow build of momentum and it's carried them to this point. And I'm, I'm real curious how long this will last. Uh, right now I don't see uh, every now and then you think you see an advance and you're like, Oh, is this a sign that it's starting to slow down? But, um, and then it'll just pick right back up. There's just a, a, a lot of, good looking shows in their future. But yeah, I mean, really throughout when, like when Cody jumped, you could see things really start to pick up consistently, like uh, nearly sold out shows or, you know, where they were just starting to really beat the last time at the arena. Their last visit. I think that's the best comparison is comparing to when they were last at the venue. Now they're consistently hitting these venues twice a year, if not more sometimes. Um, and that's tough to do is putting in uh, a, a big number multiple times per year. So, but yeah, you could see the signs. It wasn't overnight for sure. It was just something that was slowly building for them. And uh, right now I just think you're not going to see, uh, you're going to, you're going to every WrestleMania, like for the next, I, I can imagine for the next 10 years is because of reputation alone is just going to do absolutely outstanding. You know, there's not, they have nothing to worry about from that standpoint they with the, what they built there um it, it's it was just uh remarkable how well that did during the pre-sale and stuff so 
I don't see that slowing up. And and also, similarly, the uh, the other big three of or Royal Rumble at least and SummerSlam are on the same path where they're doing extremely well. So, yeah, it, it was interesting ever since that Dome show and that Royal Rumble. You know, again, it didn't sell out or really come close to it, and they only used half of it. it was, half of it was curtained off, but they had they took a chance at the time um, where it was a little questionable to do it, and it still looked great on TV with how they shot it, and uh, it just kept going from there. And, and I think that's the path really AEW is going to have to try at some point. Uh, here, they're going to have to take a chance in a market they feel good about, and even if they're only using a certain portion of the, of the stadium, they they just got to try it and, and go from there. And they're going to have to establish that local presence as soon as possible, take over the city like WWE does for these events. It's, it's difficult to do. I mean, it obviously will take a lot of money. And um, so there's a lot more <laughs> involved than, you know, me telling them what to do. But <laughs> my last question is, ha- have you ever come close to turning your comments off? And w- what is, what is the discourse like for the person that is reporting on, on ticket figures for uh, two very rational fan bases out there that love to just have, you know, very level-headed discourse online. Oh yeah. It's, it's just awful. <laughs> I, uh, at one point I, I turned the comments off for like a few uh, tweets and I, I felt like that was the wrong decision. Uh, it I encourages the quote tweets. It encourages yeah. people to say, he doesn't want, want anybody to say anything. Exactly. Exactly. And so I've been accused of being, you know, WWE apologist, AEW apologist. And how much are they paying you? <laughs> exactly. And, and now like the newest trends are fans listing capacities of the arena to show off how little of the arena, uh, you know, AEW is using, for example, or if WWE doesn't sell out a show, then there's comments like not sold out. It's like, Brandon's so yeah. Just introduced drop counts to everyone's lexicon. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I saw that's Brandon's fault. Saw a few of those. Uh, what's the drop count for Arthur Ashe? But, uh, yeah. So yeah, the discourse is usually pretty nasty, but, um, you know, I, 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 I'm really happy with, uh, how it is on cheap plug, but, uh, yeah, my Patreon, uh, you know, the, the conversation there is, is much more civilized and it's great to be able to have, have honest conversations about, you know, which shows are doing good and which aren't and what are the potential potential reasons and uh, what could help and all that stuff. It's fun to discuss as a fan and it doesn't always have to be so crazy toxic and all that stuff. But uh, you know how that place is. I oftentimes for a period of time, I just didn't look at the replies, but there there really are some meaningful replies and some value you can get from them. And I get a lot of help from the people attending these shows. So uh, I, I think them, you know, as much as I can for sending me pictures. It's a big part of the process. Uh, knowing, you know, if anything's changed from the sections that were open on the map and everything like that, it's great to have those, those final pictures because you, you know, sometimes people get moved around and I'll be curious to see how tonight looks with Arthur Ashe. And uh, it, it, it's just, uh, yeah. So sometimes the comments, you know, a lot of them are just are silly nonsense, but uh, yeah, I try to ignore the, the predictable ones at least. Yeah, I guess we would be remiss if we didn't talk about all in. So the 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 announced number paid attendance eighty one. I do have this memorized eighty one thousand thirty five. Um, but then we learned from the Brent Civic Center, which is a local government. I think it's like a word for city hall in in the borough of Brent. Uh, Seventy two thousand two hundred sixty five. Um, and actually, just general thoughts on that. I guess you know we, we we did some work together 
trying to determine exactly where the production kills were. Um, and you got to 83,000. Is it 131 for the tickets distributed for all in? Which, which fits, right? That, that fits. It should be higher than, than the number of tickets sold. Right, right. Yeah, I would definitely have to reevaluate if that came in lower. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it makes sense. You know, you look at it, you you explain the definition, and it. You know, to me, of course, it sounds. You know, you have to like consider like did people buy tickets and then upgrade their tickets, expecting to unload the other ones? Uh, it, would that explain the gap? And, so it's just uh, me that that the secondary market, it's not as easy to offload tickets in the UK and right, the secondary that's, market. That's what I heard uh, along the way as well. You could only list like so many on the UK Ticketmaster Ticketmaster maps. I never saw a, it like cross over a certain amount of resale tickets. So, and then point um, being, it's an eleven percent no show rate. The the difference between those two numbers, the eighty one thousand number and the seventy two thousand number, that means eighty one thousand tickets were bought. 72,265 tickets were actually redeemed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't have too much more to say about that. I covered yeah. that map so much. <laughs> but, um, I'm not looking forward to doing it next year. That was, that was a tough one. But How many uh, people attended WrestleMania 3, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> That's a conversation starter at a party for <laughs> yeah. everybody out there. <laughs> The elusive attendance figure of 1987. (laughs) Well, uh, on that note, I definitely encourage people to go uh, check out patreon.com slash WrestleTix. You can also uh, follow him and engage kindly uh, on on X if you so choose. Uh, But it's a a great investment, $2 a month uh, to get. Uh, to, to be able to go to all your friends and be able to rattle off the capacity figures of all these different arenas. Um, this, this is your key, uh, to such a great insight, uh, that Bill provides and, and context for a lot of these, uh, different shows and events and, and how things are moving. It's been very interesting to watch the movement this week for a grand slam as well. And we'll, uh, definitely have to have you back on sometime, Bill. And, uh, thank you so much. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is your, your debut interview wise and the world getting to meet, uh, the man behind the great Wrestle Texas account this is i promise brandon uh he'd be the first uh, i'd appear on and i'm happiest with you too john you're total professional love your guys show every week and uh i'm i'm happy to be on here uh i'd be happy to do it do it again when my schedule allows in the future that'd be great to pop on here and uh i just can't thank everybody enough for their help their support these are just at the end of the day these are just my estimates i love doing this um i think uh yeah, I've learned a lot. And if, and if I could say that it's this is the the best quality data that I think I think we've ever had as far as especially every show. We do have poll star data, but that's not every show. That's like maybe a quarter of the shows. But this is for every individual show. And in the past, we've had you know reports that that are you know in, in newsletters and stuff like that that are I think in a lot of cases just eyeball you know, uh, estimates for, from people yeah. who went to the show. And, and this is, it appears to be, you know, really well correlated to disclosures that WE makes about their averages by the quarter. Uh, and I just don't think that we've ever been able to have insight like this uh, on, on numbers related to live events that, that we can really have confidence in to, to this degree. So it's much appreciated. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Bill. We'll chat with you in the future. Thanks a lot. All right, sounds good. Thanks. So there you go, everyone. He exists.
from Russell Tix, uh, who joined us. You know, I got a I got a good one last week. Um, this person went to the effort of emailing me, so I do give them credit for this. Uh, his his name on his email was Mave Deltzer, and <laughs> he commented that uh, I missed the Canadian number for NXT last week because I'm clearly a shill that didn't want to reveal that NXT uh, destroyed Dynamite last week and. I felt like replying. I didn't. I'm publicly replying that Dynamite was ahead of NXT last week. But. If you're going to respond to trolls, always respond in a different medium than they initially engaged with you. And that, that is, I that give is this person credit for like emailing me. It wasn't just a tweet. So it's like they went to the effort to email me. So uh, you, you yes. do get a public response. Uh, yes. uh, Maeve Deltzer out there. <laughs> Legit was the name that came up on this. So nonetheless. Yes. All right. That was a great chat. Uh, so go check out twitter.com slash Russell Tex. And Brandon, will you be watching Grand Slam tonight? And what do you what do you feel like this Dynamite for all the talk of like the tickets and, and such like Dynamite numbers have been pretty much like they don't move up too much. They don't move down too much. Like there was the outlier of like blood and guts hitting, I think, yeah. a point three four. But typically it's like a point two nine to a point three one is most weeks. And like, do you see tonight's show? I mean, this is your best opportunity of of getting a spike. But do you think we're we're sort of into that impact wrestling spike TV range where it's like no matter what they threw against the wall, it was like you got your 1.0. So Blood and Guts, which is July 19th, it did do a 0.34, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I doubt it does that degree, right? I feel like the, the Blood and Guts build was greater than the build for this show or for any of the particular matches on this show. Um I, uh, I, I usually I, I am roped in uh, for my significant other to watch Big Brother on CBS, which will probably be number one overall. Uh, but but I, on a second screen on Sling, I will have a uh, dynamite on for sure. Are you two going to check out Love After Divorce on Netflix? Absolutely not. <laughs> so that's a waiting favorite. My last thing. What what do you think the demo number was for the first Grand Slam two years ago? That was Kenny Omega versus Brian Danielson. If I've, I've, I just said I, I don't remember numbers well, that but that I'm, I've been thinking lately like they were doing over a point four zero for a while there, right? And so you want two years ago, twenty twenty one. Yeah, so this is super hot coming in. This, this is that big September month. The hottest AW's ever been yes. is August and September twenty twenty one. Um, four, four, four eight. Very four, close. Eight. Yes. Okay. Wow. Last year they did a point three five. So it was down. Okay. I don't think they hit a point three five this year. No, that's, no, that's I would say. I mean, it's been doing a, a three zero to a three two lately, right? I would say maybe high end, maybe three three at most. I don't see going down. I just don't know if they have enough to, no. that's going to really juice up the number all, all that much. But we will see. It, it does look like a very good card on paper tonight. So Wayne and I will be chatting about that ten Eastern tonight on the post YouTube channel uh, for Rewind to Dynamite, and then we have. Uh, we actually have four straight shows coming at you this week on postwrestlingcafe.com, including our look back at The Last of McGinnis. Did you ever see this documentary on Nigel McGinnis? No, you guys are talking about it, though. It's very good. It's, it's, a, very, uh, it's a very sobering uh, ending, but it does have the happy ending that this guy ends up going to work for WWE and now working with AEW. But at this time, this DVD came out, and it was uh, you know, a guy that was pretty pretty brutally honest about his his career and where he felt he was at at, at that time uh, in his life. So we will go back to that 2013 documentary that's Thursday at postwrestlingcafe.com. Uh, and Brandon is back Sunday 
11 a.m. Eastern at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics as they will be making sense of all of the world of professional wrestling and uh, maybe more insight into Grand Slam and whether it was a double, triple home run or a Grand Slam for the company. I don't know if this is going to be a Grand Slam for the company. Yes, we'll we'll talk about whatever business comes out of Grand Slam, the ratings, the attendance. Vince McMahon, you can always count on Vince McMahon and CM Punk to have some kind of news. There's more Vince McMahon here. CM Punk, a much bigger media draw, wrestling media draw, I think, than than Vince McMahon. That's been proven. Um, But maybe some discussion about this um, ABC perhaps being sold away from Disney. And what does that mean for this notion that maybe Disney is interested in SmackDown rights? Uh, questioning that. Um, and th- according to Vince McMahon, W is plateaued. That's why this deal had to be, had to be done. Yeah. We didn't even talk about that as uh yeah, business has been through the roof over the last uh, 18 months as a uh, bill can attest to um, Vince McMahon thought it was plateauing time to get out this wrestling thing. It's a fad did as much as he could do. Yeah. <laughs> what does that tell you to your, like your perspective, well, what, not your perspective, your actual partners now at TKO. Like that's a, it's a very odd way to phrase the state of your company. I mean, there's some ways I can twist it into making sense, but he's clearly not set reading the press releases that W is continuing to send out after every PLE about how they broke all, they broke the attendance record, the gate record, the merch record and all that. So. Okay. Well, Vince McMahon, if he wants to clarify, um, you can get in touch with uh, Brandon at russellnomics.com and uh, we'll, we'll try and squeeze you in for a segment, but that's it for us. Thanks to everyone for tuning in live or downloading after the fact we're here every Wednesday at 3 PM Eastern time. And, uh, NXT numbers are about to drop, so go follow at Russellnomics.